the status of prophet, like an artisan. And just to make sure it's actually in a reading statement, it's like one of the prophets of the Old Testament. So, <laughs> just underline that word. So, there are a couple of things that we think about the prophets of the Old Testament in Scripture. And one of the things that prophets always do in the Gospel is that in the Bible is they call for change. And the nature of the change that prophets call for is never one that those in power want to hear. The prophets never get run out of town by the people. They are driven away or killed by those who have the most to lose and change occurs. So the prophets in the Bible are always persecuted by those who hold power and authority. And this holds true for John. When we think of him, we first think about his ministry of preparation, preparing the way of Jesus. We think about the crowds gathering, his disciples that follow him. They're all attracted to his primary message of repentance, a call to change, to recalibrate life, to more fully reflect the goals of God rather than the needs and necessities of the world. That's the main thing in John's ministry. The issue that John highlights of the impropriety of the relationship between Herod and Herodias who was his brother's wife's not the main thing. Yet why, so why antagonise the king and more importantly the queen? Because in the end this secondary thing kills him. Well actually the relationship and how Herodias and Herod were doing life was a really good example for John because it was an example that everyone knew. Because Herodias and um, Herod are a power couple, they're famous, they are celebrity of their time. So Game of Thrones, cross with Kardashians. <laughs> right? And Herodias is very ambitious, she's a very ambitious woman. And her first husband was Herod's brother, called Herod's brother. He's the father of Salome, the young woman that dances. But he's not ambitious enough. And so when Herodias meets Herod Antipas, the brother of her husband, in Rome about 28 AD, they fall in love. And they both get divorced and they marry each other, and it's scandalous. Not only is it scandalous, it exacerbates the rifts in Herodias' family. Two of the thrones are continuously knocking each other off to get advantage of the various kingdoms of, of Judea. So in the end, what happens after the story, just so you know, is that um, Herodias' ambition ultimately does them both in because Caligula grants her brother Agrippa, Herodias' brother, the title king, and she can't have that, so she sends Herod off to Rome to make sure he gets the same title. And while he's there, her brother accuses Herod of um, being disloyal to Caligula. And there's no way to disprove that. So, um, that never ends well about Caligula. And so what actually happens is he gets, Herod gets yanked from um, 
Galilee, and he gets exiled to the far-flung reaches of the empire, which happens to be Leon in Gaul at that time. And um, Herodias goes to exile with him, and we never hear from him in the historic record again. So people knew the story. They knew what had happened. There was an existing narrative out there, so it's a good example. That's why John is able to use that. And of course, the rejection of his message and his execution by the king conforms John's life to the pattern of an Old Testament prophet. But again, the central message of John's public ministry is to repent, turn, change. And that was what the people of Jerusalem and all Judea had been drawn to. And even here it says in scripture, was a little bit interested in that because it says that when he heard John, he was perplexed. He didn't understand it, but he loved to listen. So what was the change that John was calling for? John preached a message of repentance that was symbolically expressed in water baptism, but was to be actively expressed in daily life. John's message of repentance required a change of heart that manifested in a change of action. And so you see in Luke 3, the crowds listening to John cry out to know what they must do. And so we see John tells them. John commanded the tax collectors. He said, tax collectors don't make people pay more than they owe. To the soldiers, he said, don't force people to pay protection money and be satisfied with your pay. And to the crowd as a whole, he said, well, if you have two coats, give one to someone who doesn't have any. If you have food to share, share it. And in those comments, we see the crux of the challenge to repent. And it is the same central crux of all prophetic challenges. Because none of those specific challenges that he issued here involve the proclamation of some new moral absolute. The tax collectors knew. The soldiers knew. crowd knew. They all knew that the behaviours that the prophet was pointing out to them, the behaviours that they were engaging in, weren't the right things to be doing. That's the crux of the challenge, the prophetic challenge. Prophets challenge you to do what is right, not what is acceptable. And you know, we know that too. We know when we are measuring our own behaviours relative to others rather than against God's standard. And I'll tell you how you know when you're doing it. It's when within our internal narrative of justification we find ourselves thinking everyone does that or on the other side of the coin no one does that
That's why we need prophets. Prophets jar the consciousness of the people, reminding us that what is acceptable, what everyone does, or what no one appears to do, is sometimes unjust and is sometimes just plain wrong. Today at 12.30, as Jen said, we're hosting a gathering of Wellington's African community to celebrate Nelson Mandela Day, which is actually the 18th of July, which is his birthday. When we say Nelson Mandela in this country, think of one thing. You're thinking of one thing. You're right? <laughs> you know, apartheid was always unjust. Apartheid was always wrong. And we knew it. And the prophetic voices in our country called us to account. And we all sit there and we're all thinking about 1981, what we did, you know, who went to the game, who did go, who stood in the, you know, who went to the, who was it, who got arrested after, um, after the flower farming game in Hamilton, all those things. We're thinking about that. Where we were, what we did, 1981. But you know what? The whole Max first toured South Africa in 1928. Although Māori's had been uh, always eligible to represent New Zealand, the New Zealand Rugby Football Union chose not to select them to play in South Africa. And in 28, it meant that George Nipia couldn't go. 1928. 32 years later. 1960. 160,000 New Zealanders signed a petition opposing that year's tour to South Africa by an all white, all blacks team. No Maldives, no tour was one of the slogans. And we had the argument about whether politics had a place in sport. And in the end, Wilson Rinaray's team left as planned, the, arrow, the aircraft narrowly missing demonstrators who were sprinting across the runway at Fanuakai Airport trying to stop that plane taking off. 1960. It can take a long, long time to hear and to respond to the prophetic challenge. 21 years later, 1981 changed our country in a lot of ways. And as I thought about the context of that period and as it relates to the prophetic challenge to do what is right, it occurred to me that one of the lasting legacies of that time in New Zealand of the conflict that we experienced was a society that became more attuned to that prophetic challenge, to, to dealing with issues of prophetic change. He had the tour in 1981. In 1985, there was one of the first global responses to a major international um, crisis um, was the famine in Ethiopia. Across the world, people came together to try and respond in some way to what they were seeing and understanding. That's you thinking about things like live aid. Back in New Zealand, in 1998, there was the Hikoi of Hope when New Zealanders marched the length of this country to protest against poverty and inequality. 
1998. It can take a long time to hear and respond to the fear of change. And more recently, in a social media world, we pay our engagement with the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. All these types of prophetic challenges challenge us to look at our lives. They challenge us to do what is right, not what is acceptable. So where are we being challenged today? Who is calling us to consider that what is acceptable, that what everyone does or what no one seems to do is sometimes unjust and is sometimes just wrong? Where is that challenge? What one resonates with you? Who is challenging you to change? Who is the voice? Where are the voices crying out in the wilderness? Because we know. We know the behaviours that those voices challenge us about. We know that the way we do things is not always the right way to do it. There is more that we should be doing. We know. But the question is, when will we repent and change?